Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series in the life of Jacob with James Jordan. And here, Jordan's going to be in Genesis chapter 35, verses 1 through 4, where Jacob cleanses the household of the foreign gods. Make sure to check out the articles that are up on our website this week. We have a post from Ralph Smith on James Jordan and biblical language, and a helpful post by Lindsay Tollefson on gift giving to children during Christmas. We really hope that you enjoyed this time of teaching, and we want to thank you for listening. And here's James Jordan continuing his series on the life of Jacob in Genesis chapter 35. We're in Genesis chapter 35, and I'll ask you to hear the Word of God in chapter 35, verses 1 to 7. And God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and stay there, and construct an altar there to the Mighty One who was seen by you when you fled from Esau your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the teraphim, the foreign gods that are in your midst, purify yourselves, Change your garments. Let us arise and go to Bethel. There I will construct an altar to the God who delivered me on the day of my distress. He was with me on the way that I went. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that were in their hand, along with the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob concealed them under the terebinth that is near Shechem. And they moved on. And now great fear from God lay upon the towns round about them, so that they did not pursue Jacob's sons. And Jacob came back to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan, that is now Bethel, he and all the people with him. And there he built an altar and called the place God of Bethel. For there had God been revealed to him when he fled from his brother. As we look at this, there are a few things that stand out. You might not notice as we consider this. God speaks to Jacob here, and he says, Arise, go up to Bethel, and stay there. Of course, it's been a while, we don't remember. But in Genesis 27, that's what Rebekah said to Jacob. And remember from the last period that this event is very much parallel. We're leaving idols behind, going to Bethel. We're leaving the idolatry of Isaac, making himself God, leaving him behind and going to Bethel, where we encounter God. And the language is the same. Rebekah says, So now, my son, listen to my voice. Arise. Go to Laban, stay with him a few days. Same words, same order. God's command here parallels Rebekah's. Rebekah is gone and almost certainly dead by this time, and God now takes her place in giving direction to Jacob. He's matured beyond his father and mother to listening directly to God. And he says, build an altar. Slaughter site is what Fox has. This is the only time in Genesis that God tells anyone to build an altar. So it stands out to us. And as always, we've got the anti-Jacob view and the pro-Jacob view. The anti-Jacob view says that Jacob has been in sin, so God has to appear to him and say, Hey, have you forgotten me? Go build an altar. The pro-Jacob view, which I hold and I think is correct, would not be able to go with that. There's no indication in the text 
that Jacob has forgotten God. There's no indication that he's been involved with these foreign gods that he's about to get rid of. Rather, I would say the disaster that has just happened is such that God wants to reassure him of his presence. And so God comes to him and says, build an altar, worship me. You can still do that. The covenant isn't destroyed. You're still permitted to be the one who builds altars and leads in worship. Because that's what is threatened here. The covenant is almost destroyed. And Jacob may have in his mind, I wonder if I really still have this privilege of being the covenant head any longer. And I think that if there's anything to be noticed in that God commands him to build an altar, it would be reassurance from God that he can. Maybe we need that from time to time. We feel like when everything is going well, you feel like, well, I can pray to God and I can go and pray to God and I can talk to Him and I can talk to Jesus and I can pray the Lord's Prayer and I can read the Psalms. But maybe if something really bad happens and you think, maybe God is against me. Uh, maybe He doesn't want me. And then you need some encouragement. Somebody to come along and say, oh yes, go ahead and build the altar. You need to build an altar. You need to go back to pray. You need to pray something. Pray the Lord's Prayer if you can't think of anything else to pray. If you're baptized and you're still alive, it's not too late. And so I think that's much more what's happening here. Jacob may wonder if he still has the privilege of drawing near to God after these events that his son has committed. Or at least, does he still have the privilege of conducting public worship at an altar after what has happened? And God says, yes, you do. I want you to continue doing it because I'm going to change the situation here. I'm not going to set you aside and call another Abraham and have him build the altars. You're going to be the one to do it, and we're going to change these boys, and we're going to make them into different kinds of people over the long haul. But God comes to him and encourages him to continue in his task, assuring him that the covenant has not been completely destroyed, and just as sometimes we have to be encouraged to continue in prayer when we may think that our privilege of standing with God is been removed. Also, another statement here in this first verse, construct an altar to the mighty one, El, who was seen by you when you fled from Esau. Again, of course, that reminds us of the first time we left behind idolatry and came to Bethel, to the ladder to heaven. But there's more to it. Jacob is now fleeing from other brothers who were made his brothers by circumcision. Remember, circumcision is the sign of being a full brother in the covenant house. Esau was circumcised. He has to flee from Esau. All these men in Shechem, in Salem, were circumcised. Now they're murdered. But they were his brothers. And they were the brothers of Simeon and Levi, because when you're circumcised, you become part of the clan and become part of the brotherhood. And Jacob now has to flee from other brothers who were made his brothers by circumcision. Again, the anti-Jacob view would say, well, here's an allusion to the fact that Jacob had wronged Esau just as the sons wronged Shechem and so he had to flee on both occasions because he had done something wrong. My view is that Isaac was the one who wronged Esau by rejecting the meaning of circumcision, just as the sons wronged Shechem. And circumcision lies behind both of these stories. What does circumcision mean? Well, long ago I pointed out to you that in circumcision, what is cut off from the man represents his child, his children, which are given to God. You give your future to God, you give your children to God, that part of the man that is cut off represents his children who are given to God. Now, if Isaac had understood that, Isaac looked himself in the mirror or looked down at himself and remember what God says is that my children are cut off, 
My children are given to God and they belong to Him. That's what we do in baptism. We give our children to God. It's the same as circumcising. For a man to circumcise himself and cut off that part of himself, which is where the children come from, and give it away, that's to give your children to God. But Isaac doesn't give his children to God. Isaac rejects the meaning of circumcision. That's why he's threatening the covenant. Because he circumcises his sons and then he defiles the meaning of it. Because if he'd understood circumcision, he would have given his sons to God. Which would have meant Esau gets one portion, Jacob gets two portions. Jacob gets the covenant inheritance, Esau doesn't because that's what God says. God says, give your two sons to me and I will tell you what to do with them. Isaac won't do that. So Isaac has rejected the meaning of circumcision. What happens here in this story that we just read last week, last time? Well, the same thing. The meaning of circumcision is you're a priestly nation and you call the Gentiles into the kingdom. What these boys do with it is they use it as a way to massacre Gentiles and destroy their witness. So in both cases, the sin involves circumcision. Isaac's refusal to practice the meaning of circumcision means that he has encouraged Esau for 77 years to think that Esau is going to inherit. And when Esau doesn't inherit, Esau is angry. And so Jacob has to flee. It goes back to Isaac's refusal to obey the meaning of circumcision and give his children to God. And what's just happened is Simeon and Levi use circumcision as a way to destroy the Gentiles, which again goes against the meaning of it. The meaning of it is these people are included with you as brothers. You don't massacre your brothers. Esau sought to kill his brother. Simeon and Levi seek to kill their brothers, who are the men of Shechem who have been circumcised. So there are lots of parallels, and they're instructed to us. What does it mean for us to be baptized, to be made clean, to be put into the kingdom of God? Whatever it means, it doesn't mean that you murder other Christians, or that you're despicable in your behavior toward other Christians. It means that you obey God, that you take that cleansing water that's been given to you, and you seek to spread it to the entire world. Those are still things that baptism means for us today. Then in verse 2, Jacob passes on God's word to his family. Jacob said to his household and all who were with him. See, that here we have an indication that there's lots of people. We already know that he has men servants and maid servants. They have children. There's going to be lots of people in this overall clan. And he says to his immediate family as well as to his entire clan, put away... The foreign gods in your midst, purify yourselves and change your garments. Now, what does this mean? That's the question we should ask. But we can run over to Leviticus, which happened several centuries later, and find that if you become ceremonially unclean, defiled, by contact with a dead body or a carcass of an animal or something else, you have to wash yourself and wash your garments, change them, wait until the evening sacrifice and so forth. But we're not in Leviticus. This is centuries before, and the Levitical laws are not given yet, and they're not operative in this situation. So where does this come from? Possibly God told him to do it. Possibly God said, tell the men to cleanse themselves, wash themselves. That's what this means. Wash yourself, baptize yourself, and change your garments. But we don't read that God told him to do that. I imagine at some point 
this information had come from God to the patriarchs. But the question is, where in Genesis do we find these ideas? Where do we find in Genesis the idea that after you sin, you've got to change your clothes? And where in Genesis do we find the idea that after you sin, and when you put away Satan and false gods, you have to wash yourself? That God is going to provide water to cleanse you from what you've done as a result of being involved with Satan and idolatry. Because this event here is not coming after Mount Sinai where God gives them the laws of it. It's here in Genesis. So the explanation should be earlier in Genesis. Is there something that God said to Abraham or to Noah that Jacob might be building on here? Noah changes garments or somebody else? Well, the answer is, of course, in your notes. And they both go back to Genesis chapter 3. The first one, the easy one, changing your garments, is right there. And we all know this. Adam and Eve put on garments of fig leaves, and God changed their clothes to animal skin. The leaves were garments that they put on in their sin. They commit idolatry. They get involved with Satan. The first act of violence that comes out of this idolatry is Adam blaming Eve for his sin. Adam was the one who stood there and virtually encouraged her to eat the fruit by not saying anything. And uh, when she didn't drop dead, then he participates too. Well, then he wants to blame her. So there's violence against the brother who is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And the symbol of that, the garments that they wear in that situation are these fig leaves. And God says, well... If you're going to change, if there's going to be a new world for you, if you're going to continue to live, you're going to be restored. We need to change those clothes. Take off the fig leaves and put on animal skins. Now, of course, there's a lot more involved here. You have to kill an animal and there has to be bloodshed. There's a great deal. This one event encapsulates a whole lot of things. Dressing them as animals means that they have become united with the animal kingdom by hearkening to a serpent. They become like beasts. And later on, wicked people in the Bible are called beasts. But it also at the same time means that they're covered by the blood. So there's a lot of things involved in being covered with animal skins. But one of them is you have to change your garments. The clothes that you have on in connection with your sin, those garments have to be set aside and new garments. Why? Well, garments mean two things for us. One is... They cover up our nakedness, which would embarrass us if we were uncovered. Anyone in this room, except that baby over there who doesn't care, is to take off all her clothes, you'd be embarrassed. You'd feel shame. So you cover it up. But the other thing is, we don't just wear potato sacks to cover ourselves up. Everybody dresses pretty because clothing also has to do with glory, and it has to do with how you look. Well, since it has to do with glory... That's the important thing here. One way or the other, you're covered. Covered with old clothes or covered with new clothes. The old clothes, that glory has been defiled because of sin. Glory has to do with what shines out from you, and when you sin, what shines out from you is bad. Remember what Jacob says right here at the end of chapter 34. He says, you make me to stink in the nostrils of all these people. In other words, our witness now stinks. Our glory is defiled. When people look at us, they don't see something attractive and glorious that they want to be part of, which is what we initially read. All those men of Salem and Shechem said, hey, let's join up and be part of these Hebrews. This looks good to us. Now people are going to say exactly the opposite. We don't want anything to do with these people. 
Our glory, what shines out from us, is totally defiled. And that's represented by our clothing. Now our clothing is defiled. It stinks. I've worn it 20 times without washing it. And now it just stinks. You've got to take it off, put on some new clothes. And God allows you to do that when you repent. So you can have new glory and maybe the witness will be restored. And at least to some extent it is. Because after they change their garments, the people round about are at least afraid of them. Whereas before, the people round about were ready to attack them because of what they had done. So, changing the garment after your time of sin and idolatry means putting aside sin and idolatry, but specifically, it means changing your witness, changing your glory. What comes out from you, the way you appear, so that your appearance and the way you smell and everything else, that's changed. It has to, because the old garments, you were wearing them when you sinned, and now they are defiled. You have to make yourself look different. This is just psychology. People do this. Somebody who's lived a really rough, horrible life or becomes a Christian, they may may well want to dress different and look different because they don't want to dress and smell and feel the same way they used to when they were living a sinful life. So we can do it psychologically, but the symbolic side is right in there as well. It's the same. You change your glory because your old glory is defiled by your sin. Well, that's easy. We can see changing the clothes. Cleansing yourself and washing yourself is a little bit harder. And you may think that this is wrong, but I think it's right, so I'll share it with you. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, I think we see the beginning of baptism here. By the sweat of your nose will you eat bread until you return to the soil. For from it you were taken, for your dust into dust you will return. Now, we always think of this exclusively as some type of a curse, but it's not. The judgment was, in the day you eat of it, you will die. The fact that Adam doesn't die means that the judgment is withheld and there's some mercy and some grace in it. Now, he says the soil is going to be cursed with reference to you and it will be through difficult labor that you will get anything from it, but you will still get something from it. And right in the middle of that, he says, in the sweat of your brow, which is literally in the sweat of your nose, you will eat bread. Well, the reason it gets translated, sweat of your brow, is not because the Hebrew word for nose also means brow. It doesn't. And this is the only place in the Bible that our English Bibles mistranslate. The reason they do, of course, is your nose doesn't really sweat. It's really up here on your forehead that you get a lot of sweat, which then drips down your nose and drips off your nose. I mean, you've all been outside and experienced this. If you wear glasses, they slide off because there's a little bit of sweat that comes out from your nose, but primarily it's coming from here and dripping down your nose, and that's what makes it baptismal. The nose is important because when God created Adam in the first place, what did he do? He took dust and then he breathed it into the nose, the breath of life. Now, think about it just a minute. The nose is where the breath of life comes in. Adam's kind of like a balloon that gets blown up with God's air and now he's alive. 
Whatever helps you to remember it. Life comes in from the nose. What was the judgment? In the day you eat of it, you will die. So if the nose is the central place where life is, on your face, your heart is the center of life for your whole body, but your face, the nose is the center, and so that's where life is. If you die, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Where is the center of that death? Right here as well. This isn't real complicated. If the place where life is, centrally, is the nose, then in the day you eat of it, you will surely die, and they did, so they're going to have to die. Where is the death going to be centrally located? On the nose. We don't have to be told that. So if we're going to be resurrected, what has to be cleansed? The nose has to be cleansed. The nose is a microcosm of the whole person. The whole person is made alive. The whole person dies. The whole person has to be baptized to come to life again. The whole person is alive. The whole person dies. The whole person is baptized for resurrection. Now, the symbol of that, the center of it is, the nose is where the life comes in. That's the center of life because it's the breath of life. Now, the nose is where death is going to come from. There's not going to be any breath. God is going to take away the breath of life. So there won't be any breath coming in and out of your nose. And so that's where death is. Death is when you don't breathe anymore. So if there's going to be resurrection and cleansing, this is where it is too. To bring the nose back to life is to bring the whole body back to life so that you can breathe again. Anybody who has sleep apnea, I mean, I do. I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes and I know I haven't breathed. And I have to jerk. <gasps> Make myself breathe. You stop breathing. Make yourself breathe again. Well, that's what's pictured here. Adam and Eve are going to stop breathing. Their nose is going to stop working unless it's baptized. And so now the water is going to start here and flow down. It says sweat of the nose, but in reality it starts on the brow. So that's why our Bibles translate it that way or paraphrase it that way. And it drips down on the nose just as baptism comes down from above. And sweat originates on the forehead, moves down to wash the nose baptismally. And that is the first expression of baptism in the Bible. The only reason Adam can continue to be alive and the only reason he can continue to get anything from the soil at all is because he's baptized. In the sweat of your nose you will eat bread. I kill this animal. Well, God hasn't done it yet, but he's going to. I'm killing this animal, giving you a new life. After the sacrifice comes baptism. Jesus is sacrificed, and then the baptism comes on the day of Pentecost. I kill the animal. Now you go out, and you'll be baptized, and that washing of water will remind you that I'm giving you new life. And that's why, even though the soil doesn't work very well, that's the only reason it works at all. Or you'd be dead. Or if you were still alive, you wouldn't get anything out of the ground. It wouldn't yield anything. I suggest to you that that's the first time you find washing, any kind of washing in the Bible. And that the various kinds of washing that come up later on extend from that. And when we push it back to Genesis 3, we can see its relevance here and how it's relevant everywhere. Whenever you become involved with Satan, whenever you become involved in idolatry, whenever you become involved in violence, which is what Adam does against Eve, blaming her, and sets her up, and then when he's caught in his sin, he blames her. This is what happened with these guys here. They blame Shechem for 
seducing Dinah when they were the ones who should have been watching out for her, then you have to change your garments, you're going to repent, and you have to be baptized. You have to wash. Of course, in the Old Testament, there are lots and lots of different kinds of baptisms. There's lots and lots of different kinds of washings as we lead forward to the New Covenant where we just have one baptism for remission of sins. Well, another aspect of this, we can see the parallels back to the Garden of Eden, is that the sins of Simeon and Levi in chapter 34 mean that they have to leave this Eden. They've been in a Garden of Eden called Salem. Salem means peace. And this has been a nice place. They had lots of fellowship there. These people were covenanting in. They had bought a piece of territory there, set up an altar there. Everything was nice. as kind of a restored Garden of Eden. Then they commit this sin, and they're cast out. They have to leave. And so, again, the same kinds of cleansing that you have in Genesis 3 are appropriate. Adam and Eve sin. They're cast out. And on the way out, they change their clothes, and God tells them that, they're going to be washed. Well, perhaps one other thing we can say, and then we'll have to stop. Now, actually, we'll do verses 3 and 4, and that will give us a good stopping point. Verse 3, we can continue this comparison to early parts of Genesis. Jacob continues by saying, Arise, and let's go to Bethel, and there I will construct an altar to the God who answered me on the day of my distress. He was with me on the way that I went. Well, to explain the washing and the changing of garments, I went back to Genesis 3 and being exiled from the Garden of Eden. But there's also an obvious parallel here to Genesis 4 where Cain murders Abel and then is sent out. Because all these men of Salem are brothers. They're circumcised. And when you murder them, you're murdering your brothers and then they have to leave. So Jacob and his whole clan, they've got to leave the area of Shechem and Salem because they have murdered their brothers. What does Cain do when he leaves after murdering Abel? He builds a city. What does Jacob do after he has to leave, after his clan murders the brethren in Salem? He builds an altar. Now, that's a contrast. Cain does not go out and build an altar and start worshiping God. He doesn't repent of murdering Abel. He just goes out and builds a city. Here, however, we have a sign of repentance because we go out and we worship God and we build an altar. We have to leave, but we can go out and restore worship. And simultaneously with that, we have to get rid of the idols and the earrings. And uh, we'll do that and then that'll take care of our lesson for today. Verse 4 says, So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that were in their hand, along with the earrings that were in their ears. It says sacred rings here. I'm not sure that it has to mean that, but that's the implication. And Jacob buried them or concealed them under the oak or terebinth that is near Shechem. So this city of Shechem is called Shechem here, and it's probably the place that's called Shechem later on in the Bible. Almost. Certainly. Well, what about the earrings? Well, a couple of possibilities here. If you look at later on, the Jews come out of Egypt, they get all this spoil. They get earrings, they give all their earrings to Aaron, and they make a golden calf out of them. So maybe these earrings are part of the stuff they stole 
from the Salemites after they murdered all the men. It says they went in and plundered all the stuff that was in the city. And maybe the garments that they had to change were part of their plunder. Garments are very expensive things in the ancient world, especially your heavy outer garments. You had to make everything by hand. And it was an elaborate, heavy-duty deal. That's why when you talk about wealth in the Bible, it talks about gold and silver and changes of garments. Very expensive things. Maybe that was part of the spoil of Salem. Maybe even some of these gods were. But we don't know, and I don't think that's the main thing here. Because we're not told. We're not told that, so that's not the important thing. The garments may have been what they already had when they committed the massacre. Whatever, they have to change them. And the rings, wherever they got them, have to go out of their ears. And the reason for that, again, is explained throughout the rest of the Bible. To wear an earring, you have to pierce your ear. Now, we don't have to anymore, but you did in all pre-modern times. And, of course, most women still get their ears pierced. And the piercing of the earlobe to wear the ring symbolizes opening up your ear to hear the word of your God. And that's why these are sacred rings. Any tribal people, if they wear a tattoo, they don't wear tattoos just for decoration. If you go to the Amazon and there's some tribe and the people have tattoos, it doesn't say Susie with a heart and an arrow for it. The tattoo is a religious mark that means you're identified with the God of your tribe. The same is true of earrings. The earrings in pre-modern people are not just decorations. It's nice that we have earrings as decorations now, but they're not just decorations. They're partly decorations. I mean, if you're going to wear something that means you're linked to a certain God, you might as well make it look nice. And so the earrings can look nice. But the primary thing that they mean is that your ear is open to hear the word of whatever God is associated with the ring. So you can imagine, I don't know that this is always the case, or even ever the case, but imagine that the earring has got the name of the God on it. It's got Juju written on it. And you've got a ring in your ear that says Juju. That means that you are going to listen to what Juju has to say. He may not have much to say, but he will say, hey, that mountain over there is taboo and you can only go on it once a year, or whatever. Whatever Juju has to say, your ear is open to hear it because your ear is circumcised, it's pierced. The book of Jeremiah speaks of the circumcision of the ear. The ear is open to hear the word of the God or Master. You remember, we studied this years ago in Exodus 21, that if a man wants to remain a permanent servant in the household and be adopted, he has his ear pierced. It's a sign that his ear is open to his master's voice. And you remember then the Gospels, the servant of the high priest has his ear cut off. That's in all four Gospels. One of the very few events that's recorded in all four Gospels is that the servant of the high priest has his ear cut off, which is a symbol that the Jews were refusing to hear the word of God. Because their ear wasn't circumcised, it was going to be completely cut off. Jesus puts the ear back on and gives them another chance. Very important event. And it's the same kind of thing here. These old earrings mean that you've been listening to these false gods. The earring is a telegraph. It's a hearing aid so that you can hear the voice of your God. It's a little radio to juju. If you're going to get rid of these false gods, you've got to get rid of the earring that links you to these false gods. So that's why the earrings are taken off. You have to have a new earring that has Yahweh written on it so that you listen to Yahweh's word. Except that they actually the men don't wear earrings in the Bible. 
But if they did, that's what the earring would have to say. And that's why the rings are taken off, and that's why Fox says sacred rings, because that is what they are. The rings are the link between me and this God. And the last thing I want to point out to you is, these gods are buried, but you might not know this, so I have to tell you, this is not the usual word for burial. A few verses from now, next week, we'll see that Deborah is buried. It's a different word. It's a word that means burial, to bury a person. That word is not used here because we don't want to have any idea that these are honorably interred. They aren't buried the way you would a human being or someone that you love. Instead, they're just stuck in the ground. And this is the ultimate humiliation of these gods. They're completely impotent. Rachel stole them. There wasn't anything they could do about that. And then she sat on them. And there wasn't anything those gods could do about that. And possibly she was bleeding on them. And there wasn't anything those gods can do about that. And now the gods are stuck in the ground. And there's nothing they can do about that. This is the ultimate humiliation of these gods. And burial means death, which means these gods are killed. Thus thou art to dust thou shalt return as the sign of death. To put anything in the ground is to kill it. And burying these gods means to kill it. So you're going to get rid of these gods. You're going to bury them, which means they're killed. They're dead. And you're not going to dig them back up. And they're not buried in an honorable way the way you would a human being or someone that you love. They're stuck in the ground as a way of killing them. So this is the event that is going to begin a change in history here. We come out of Aram and we're reconciled with Esau and everything is fine and we come to the city of Salem and all of a sudden there's this terrible sin and now there's a change where we forsake the idolatry and now God can begin to change the future and make the world a different place as a result. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.